we need community. You know, I think community is the oldest entity for healing in the world. Mm. It is the entity that is the sum that's greater than its parts. So if all of us get together and we share things in community and have common goals, there is a whole nother entity and force that comes up that we would never get to alone. And that's definitely been my experience at Thistle Farms. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest. Becca Stevens is a remarkable human with a passion and propensity for big impact. She's a speaker, social entrepreneur, author, priest, and founder and president of Thistle Farms. If this is the first time you're hearing about Thistle Farms, you are going to want to check them out. Founded in 1997 with a single home for survivors of trafficking and addiction, Thistle Farms is now a global movement for women's freedom. Today, their Nashville flagship includes a residential program that serves as a national model for women's recovery and three justice social enterprises that provide jobs to survivors, amounting to $4 million in earned income last year. As you'll find out in this interview with Miles and Lindsay, when Becca puts her mind to something, she goes after it with all she has, all the while staying deeply rooted in the thing that guides her the most, love. I think my favorite line from her bio is this, Becca walks the line between pragmatism and poetry in her message that love is the strongest force for change in the world. I promise this interview is going to inspire you to believe in the power of love and redemption. Meet our friend, Becca Stevens. Becca Stevens on the Living Center podcast. Welcome, my friend. It's good to see you. Man, it's good to see you too. I feel like I just see you through Instagram. And see your beautiful family. So it's fun to actually get a chance to have a conversation. Love you. Yeah, same to you. Um, you're one of my favorite people in Nashville. And I've enjoyed getting to know you more here over the last uh, couple of years. I think we met several years ago. Uh, and I've always valued your work. But then I got to benefit from some of your wisdom because I attend your uh, church when I can. But thanks for taking time today. I know how busy you are. You're welcome. I think it's great y'all are doing a whole new podcast. I mean, that's adventuresome and beautiful in this season. (laughs) Becca, I am a huge fan of your work at Thistle Farms. And I know you've got a book called Love Heals. And that that really is an idea that's been a driving force in your life. And I know a lot of us after surviving 2020 are just weary and in need of healing. And so I was just curious about how do you really practically start to connect with that idea of love and how have you seen it be a transformative force for people and yourself too? You want to know what love is? Yeah. (laughs) Or how do I get started at it? (laughs) You know what I would say is, I mean, I think obviously that's a big, it's a, the journey in my life. It's a big question about what love is, but I would say that one of the manifestations of it that I've learned this year, and I've learned a lot. I mean, I think the pandemic is such a great teacher in so many ways for so many of us. And, you know, it's never bad to learn a lesson in humility, is it? Mm, never. <laughs> but one of the great things has been the idea of love as resilient, that love is a 
course that's resilient. That's what's really come up for me again and again is that, you know, I almost see resilience as a statement of faith, not to say like, I hope I'm resilient, but to claim it and to say that I'm going to be grounded in love and make it through this is unbelievable because so many Miles, you know this, so many injustices that we buried in shallow graves and we mm. covered it up with this idea of busyness yeah. and the idea that we were progressing and none of that was true. And it all came, you know, just flowing out and there was, you know, a whole country screaming, I can't breathe and people getting really sick and all of these things were happening. And it was like, if it wasn't going to be resilient love at this point, then love really isn't the strongest force for changing the so I've really, really learned about resilience. And then I would say the other thing I would love for us to talk about is the idea of love as the remnant. I've learned so much about that this year, too, that you remember, um, God, in Nashville when we had the bombing on Christmas morning. And a couple of days later, I went downtown just to see the rubble. And I started thinking about how my whole family's career has been a part of Second Avenue. You know, my husband musician, singer, songwriter. My son's an up and coming. My other son had a gallery showing for his first art show down there last year, 1919, actually. And how um, it's in those remnants that we remember how our broken pieces are resilient and we can piece them back together. We can build something beautiful. So, you know, I'm all about hope and about thinking that if we claim that love is powerful, then we need to be thinking about how we're digging through that rubble and finding the remnants and building on that and saying to, uh, t- saying to each other, we're stronger than this. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to work through this together. Mm. One of the uh, important learnings that I continue to be humbled by in working in, in my space and just trying to leave the world a little better than we found it and try to help people go through, navigate challenging times is that the ecosystem that serves as the foundation behind any kind of helping profession or offering, um, I feel, has more to do with the outcomes and deliverables than any model you might use to change somebody. And it... I've never seen it more relevant than now, and I think it exposed some interesting things, uh, not just in my space, but all kinds of change initiatives from education to politics to business to faith, in that I believe it was a big mirror for us to look at uh, who are we beyond what we do and deliver to the world, and who are we beyond what we know. And one of the things that I have felt in my experience with you and your offerings. And we'll talk about that later with um, something fun we did with Thistle Farms in 19. But uh, just even with uh, ministry that you lead, um, all the uh, social justice initiatives that you've launched, it feels like, is there clinical sophistication? Is there a savvy business model? Is there innovation? All that. Um, But you can feel something 
when you walk into the space and interact with the people behind the scenes. And I think you just described it, which is you can just feel the purity of this thing is built on love. And without it, we don't really have much else. So I would say for everybody else out there that feels a little bit like they're flailing right now, trying to reintegrate whatever pieces of identity that have been fractured, like you talked about, or fragmented, and talk more about that opportunity of reintegration, of um, love as a foundation, and how do we put that first and lead with it versus trying to show the world our highlight reel? I love the question, and I really think I really more love the sentiment behind the question, um, which is really about community and how it realizes itself and practices in the world. And I'm all about that. I believe in practically divine which kind of means almost divine and useful divine, right? And so for me, I could never do traditional all-day therapeutic models with a lot of grace, but I can do community and I can do arts and crafts, (laughs) like nobody's business. And I love that in the midst of the pandemic, how quickly we turn to the arts and crafts people to say, like, can you make masks? You know, can you do this? We need this. We need homemade hand sanitizer. And it was kind of an affirmation that you can have revolutionary community work with arts and crafts and it be considered not just therapeutic, but also um, community healing for the wider community, not just the community you're in. And I've seen it over and over. And that was really the model that Thistle Farms was built on is that when I was working with women who were really poor, I could talk about love, but I really can't talk about love unless I'm actually going to engage your economic well-being. That's the practically divine part, that if you're poor, sometimes it is about the money. It is about healing from within and doing, you know, Mount Everest type of therapeutic work. Sometimes it's also like, I also need to pay off these back fines and feed my children and figure out how transportation is going to work and all those. So I immediately in the community went to what we're going to do is we're going to sit around and basically have a 20th, 21st century sewing bee. We're going to sit around and do these things together and tell stories and watch how that is trauma informed and watch how it is, you know, economically impactful impactful, not just for the women, but the communities. And we're going to be doing healing work on our bodies. We're going to talk about intimate body work with healing oils, but it's not going to be gross or embarrassing. <laughs> you know, we're going to say we're going to make a ton of money because those have good margins and long shelf lives. So for me, what that looked like was it was, there is some sophistication in the design, but it really comes from a place of it matches pretty well my personality and how I understood healing to happen that I could do both the practical things and the really um, hard therapeutic things and do some of that in conjunction with each other to find healing does that make sense or is that no it makes sense and I I think the reason you did get to pick up on the sentiment which I appreciate is that uh, I think what I'm scratching my head about and curious of is okay we've we weren't exactly in, in a great space uh, prior to this collectively as humanity as it, re- as it regards our mental health or just to me, even strip it back from that, just feeling disconnected, you know, loneliness epidemic, higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of suicidality, depression, on and on and on. And 
And now you put all this vicarious, secondary, and in many cases, primary trauma on top of it with the global health crisis and economic impact and on and on, social unrest. Um, there's just been an array of opportunities um, that initially presented as obstacles, and hopefully we can turn them into opportunities. But knowing that there's a compound effect in what's potentially coming, uh, we're already starting to see some of it. And I've been around, you know, the mental health space for a couple of decades, and I've been highly encouraged by some of the thought leaders and the information that I've had an opportunity to sit on through the lens of psychology. But I've also felt a little overwhelmed at times uh, with the idea that I don't think we're the smartest with using our information collectively in a way that effectively addresses and creates a solution for humanity. I don't want to discount what myself, my colleagues, other people have been a resource for because we've saved a lot of lives and turned around and changed a lot of lives. So I'm really proud of the impact. But I'm also realistic in saying the problem is still outpacing the solution four or five to one. And I don't think without some type of community model where we can start to take some of the information that we've seen through science and mobilize it and make it obtainable so that trauma-informed community, emotionally intelligent, self-aware, connected people that know how to catch one another on the fall and support one another on the rise um, is beyond the walls of a counseling center or a treatment center and that we can uh, move it into a community. So I, I don't guess that's a question other than just a little bit of a riff. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. On you, I'm sure you see where we are. I'm sure you see what's potentially coming. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning of this, the pandemic being a great learning opportunity. How are you, I know your mind uh, as a social entrepreneur and just somebody who, who gives a crap um, about humanity. Um, I, I do more than give a crap. I actually love it. Yeah. And so, so, so for somebody who loves it, um, I'm sure you're thinking now, all right, here we go. Let's run. How are we going to, how are we going to move into this next season and help the most amount of people? Or maybe not. No, but I love what you're saying. And I think for me, it's the beautiful marriage between loneliness and community. And I think both have their place in a journey of my spiritual life. I've been lonely for as long as I can remember. And I take great heart in that because it keeps me searching and it keeps me curious and it keeps me longing which is a good thing, especially if you're in a space of leadership, you got to keep searching and longing for things. And I love that Dorothy Day, who started the whole Catholic worker movement, entitled her whole autobiography, The Long Loneliness. Or Howard Thurman, the grandfather of the civil rights movement, who talks about um, the loneliness of another key for the truth seeker that is willing to go beyond whatever boundary it is. I mean, and there's a lot of examples of that, of, you know, we're not going to cure and we don't need to cure this longing that we have. And sometimes that manifests in loneliness, but we can travel with fellow people on that lonely road. And that's why, you know, to go along with that, we need community. You know, I think community is the oldest entity for healing in the world. It is the entity that is the sum that's greater than its part. So if all of us get together and we share things in community and have common goals, 
there is a whole nother entity and force that comes up that we would never get to alone. And that's definitely been my experience at Thistle Farms. And we, we've gotten community down to where we know that it needs ritual, it needs daily practice, it needs common goals. You know, we have, I think, something like 20 practices now after 25 years of doing this. And the simplest one is, you know, we light a candle every day and we sit in a circle. And Miles, you've been in that circle. And we just say we light this candle for the woman still on the street and the woman trying to find her way home. Because we know there's a lot of women who know that loneliness, but not the community side of the possibility of sharing that burden. And it's been a miracle. I mean, it doesn't have to be a huge complicated ritual or a whole institution around it. It's just committed people saying, we're gonna sit together in a circle and remember that we wanna invite more people in. And I'm telling you, it gets your head straight. You're like, okay, now we're getting ready to go to work. Let's go, let's do this. You get energized by it. It's a good thing. A couple things I just want to see if we can talk about is that we, in 2019, had a group of women who came out to on-site from Thistle Farms who were treated like queens. And my favorite part about it is they all had jobs. They all work hard for justice, freedom, and peace. And when on-site becomes a vacation, you know you're doing <laughs> <laughs> the hardest work in the world and they were like sign me up this is amazing I get to be treated well and fed well and cared for and sometimes I think just making that offering for people is the most healing thing I mean you guys do community you do that and to be included in that among you know many many survivors it was I mean they, we still talk about it at Thistle Farms as being one of the great gifts y'all gave us well, thanks for sharing that. And it's something that we plan to do more of and do again. You know, we had to obviously pump the brakes with everything that was going on in the world, but I can't wait to re-engage because uh, we still too talk about uh, that community and everybody that steps on the property out here, which, you know, I believe we're, we're fortunate to have a little sacred corner of the world up on this hill out in Tennessee, but the uh, there's a reciprocal element of healing that people bring things here, leave things here, and we as a team get to be blessed for it. And then there are those special, special people, um, which all are, but man, there's just some communities that you just don't forget. And the Thistle uh, group of women was one of those. Uh, they came in with humility and gratitude and love and um, received what we can sometimes be, can be forgotten, which we, we really believe here that hospitality is as healing as anything else we can offer. And we try to ramp it up and sometimes people notice and sometimes people expect it, but these women didn't expect it. They noticed it and they loved it. And I'm glad to hear from your perspective for them. They were like, this is as probably as, as healing as anything else we might do. And we, we put them in front of some of the best therapists in the world. Uh, but they really noticed the details and how we cared for them and loved them. And they loved us back. One thing about that offering that I thought was kind of unique and I wanted to ask you about it because I'm seeing a lot of this out in the world right now and that I notice more people right now are asking bigger, harder questions about their life and their profession than I've ever seen. Awesome. They're saying, does what I do matter? 
and, and usually the question underneath the question there as to who I am, does who I am matter? But I like that you can, you seem to see something and remove the obstacles and just go for it. Um, I think a lot of people are asking about how they can make a difference right now. Uh, what is in you that has the courage to just step through and say yes? And how might you support other people who are on the fence about thinking what could they do or asking some of these big life questions? I think I pray for patience every day and I still have to pray for it. That's what it's not a gift. It's like I'm ready to go all the time. And I think that is like a gift. Of the, it's, it's good and bad like everything is in this world. What meaningful work is that? Such a funny concept, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think it's so funny that um, one of my favorite things that happened during the pandemic, Miles, was that in Lindsay, that my son was a math major in college. And, you know, the country divided people into essential and non-essential workers. We made a complete delineation. And when he got sent home from college during the beginning of the pandemic, he decided to switch his major to art. And I was like, you know, you just made yourself non-essential. Just <laughs> like you went from essential to non-essential. And he was like, the clarity for him was what made sense to him and what had meaning, maybe in a lot of other people's eyes, was non-essential. Mm. But for him, expressing himself through art, which means, by the way, now I have three sons who do art for a living. <laughs> Wow. Oh my, I know. It's like, what in that world did I do? And my husband, I blame Marcus Hummond too. But <laughs> I do think this idea of what gives meaning is what we bring. If we can bring our whole selves in, it's kind of like the hokey pokey and shake it all about, you know, that's what it is all about. You know, whatever you can put your whole self into. And that right now has been my advice for people who if we come out of this pandemic in the next six months, say, do not go back to the way it was. You will have missed the biggest gift of this about clarity and putting your whole self in. Don't go, like change, make sure before it all speeds back up and we're all out on the road or doing whatever it is, running around crazy, that you're intentional about what has meaning for you and you don't waste that huge gift we've been given. I mean, we've paid a huge cost for that gift. For me, it means staying put more. That's what's had so much meaning for me. I go slower. And I'm, so I don't know what that means for on-site, what it means to speed back up and mm. do it a little bit different. But I hope we do that because that's what most meaningful thing is like. I'm doing this and I feel hopeful and joyful about it. Yeah. Well said. Hey friends, have you seen all the new apparel we have in the Onsite Mercantile? Our team has been hard at work bringing in the coolest finds. Now is your chance to check it out and save big. We've created a special offer just for our podcast listeners to save 20% off our collection of curated emotional wellness resources, gifts, books, and apparel from the Onsite Mercantile. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash mercantile and be sure to use the code podcast at checkout for 20% off your entire order. This season has been full of a lot of things that we're grieving, but it has definitely helped us focus on what's important to us and where the meaning is. And so, but I hope that we do, like you were saying earlier, come out and just 
know our resilience and the power that we have in ourselves to keep moving forward and hopefully keep changing the world like you've been. How do you, I mean, I was reading your bio to prep for this interview and I'm just reminded by all the different amazing things that you're a part of. How do you sort of take care of yourself in the midst of all this work and a lot of other people's pain and suffering? You know, and I don't know about y'all, but I think that's one of maybe the misnomers of our work is that it's this painful suffering way to live. Mm -hmm. When for me, I laugh as much as I cry in that circle at this arms. There's so much sadness, but there's more joy. You know, we be there the first time a woman gets her license back or, you know, is celebrating custody of children or falls in love or buys a house or, you know, celebrates graduating college. There's a million celebrations that you see. And it is, honestly, when I think of the work, I think of it as my joy. I mean, I I definitely hear the sadness and the brokenness. And again, this year, I'm all about remnants, pick up the pieces and put them back together. Like, that's fun. It's kind of like an arts and crafts project. (laughs) You start to see it come back together. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to I was going to actually going to ask a similar thing in that uh and and you you may have just answered it in just uh you you've got a lightning fast reframe reflex and it was starting to flood and get overwhelming and I do think the reframe is a gift and also think if we're not careful it can also be a, a deflect of um not feeling the weightiness of it. Where do you find I'm curious because I work with a lot of therapists I know you do too. Um, and they do, um, not all of them are able to walk that careful balance. I struggle with it too sometimes of joy and pain. And I think that's a spiritual gift when you have it and the, the, the vicarious and secondary nature of trauma that we can take on from absorbing a lot of these stories is real. Um, and I've always encouraged and, uh, for people to do their own process, find their own way to offload some of that so that you don't carry it around. Is that what you're referring to in the ritual aspect of what you do in that the reason you, the guide in this instance, would sit in that circle and be human as well? Yeah, maybe. I'm, I love your question about reframing. That's where I got kind of, I'm staying with that for a minute. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Well, I was thinking a couple things came into my mind that I wanted to say. And one of them was that I was, my mom was widowed at 35 years old. My dad was killed by a drunk driver. She had five children. And she was a master reframer, not in a way of you can't feel, but still finding like how we have so much love and there's so much to be grateful for. And that we, our house was a mess and financially, economic, you know, like, um, Emotionally, there were so many problems, but my mom was a person who could walk her five children out into the woods and find a million things to celebrate. And she could make terrariums and we would put them in a box and we would come away with a magical world after a day in the woods. And, you know, it wasn't that she was pretending like it was okay, but she could find joy. And so I feel like, you know, she was the executive director of St. Luke's Community Center in Nashville, Tennessee, working with poor children in the city for decades. So she wasn't somebody that was afraid to look at that stuff. But I really do feel like in some ways in the 
in that way, I pray I'm my mother's daughter. And then I'm thinking about a group of women um, that are refugees in Greece that we first started um, an economic justice program in 2017 that we, there was nine women that started it. Now there's 43 women working. I mean, Banksy picked up the project and it's just blown up. It's crazy. But when we started and we were in the camp, I was really afraid. I mean, the level of trauma for people who have escaped war on a boat is unbelievable. And the meager offerings that we had at the beginning with the idea of weaving those life vests they escaped with into welcome mats felt very, very scary to me. And we sat around and the women were like, I hate these life vests. I hate them. You know, they represented so much and they were tearing them up because that's how we wove them. We stripped them down. We just stripped, 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 and then started weaving. And I think it took them about five minutes to reframe. (laughs) And they started going, hey, you know what? I'm glad we're tearing these up and we should get some vans for the whole camp because everybody needs to go see doctors and attorneys and go get spices they want from the store in Athens, which is an hour away. And we need to fix this up and blah, blah, blah. And they started seeing it as this economic opportunity as they were tearing it up. And uh, I think that is a sign of resilience that I was talking about at the very beginning that I want to celebrate right now in this season. So I don't want people to deflect in a way that doesn't acknowledge the pain but I do honor the idea together we can be resilient and see the beauty. Well said. And the whole narrative behind that inspired this podcast was just to simply encourage people to live into the truth of who they are and embrace who they're becoming. And one of the ways to do that, to live more centered and grounded, I believe, is uh, learning to reframe our reality on the move, on the go. Uh, It's a therapeutic tool that we can overcomplicate sometimes, but uh, at the end of the day, it's just being able to take what is and evaluate it and almost look at it in parts. Like, well, there's a part of me that has this on board, and then there's another part of me that has this on board, and there's a part of uh, the last year that has been this, but then what about this part? And then being able to just hold it up, evaluate it, and see the light in it. And so I think... It's fun to hear the origin story of maybe where that uh, imprint came from. Uh, That's one thing. We all have origin stories, good and bad. But to honor it and to pray that I want to bring it forward, not just through the way that I live, but also in the work that I do is, uh, is beautiful. So thanks for sharing that part about your mom. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, she was she was a great person and she helped a lot of people in the city of Nashville, Tennessee lots of people. And she died the week that I opened the first house of Bissell Farms in 1997. And I always thought it was like, you know, isn't that amazing that she carried me up until I started and then it was gone. And it was, she, I mean, that was her whole life was loving people and loving the community. Wow. What's, while we're on that, I'm I, I'm curious because I'm asking. You know me. I'm a I'm a new parent. 
uh, so I'm sure you've counseled a lot of people on parenting and probably have your own philosophy around how you've done it. You've mentioned your three boys. One of them I am really fond of because he's the one I know the best, which is Levi. Um, just love that guy and what a, what a talent he is, but just a good hearted human being beyond that. So that's just, that's my frame of reference, uh, is having sat with Levi quite a bit and, and been a buddy of his. So I've seen some imprints and some things I would imagine that you've got to be proud of as a parent um, for how that guy's showing up in the world. But what's a message you'd have for parents like me um, right now, a philosophy, support, hope? What can we learn in this season and what's been helpful for you along the way? Mm, I'm so humbled that you would even ask. You know, I mean, I think for me, I always wanted my kids to have tons of space to be their most creative, true self. And I learned that from Levi. The very first time he um, etched something on our furniture, when um, he would be in trouble, he was so smart. And he wrote in the furniture in it with a knife, I love mom. <laughs> That's genius. Hard to get grounded for that. <laughs> How you get for that and I was like oh okay that's really smart <laughs> you're going to deface the furniture and put I love mom in there because I'll keep it forever but you know we always had places for them to really ex express again themselves whether it's through painting or work um, just pads and paper and space to create and I think that's how a lot of times kids find that voice and it was a good space for us in our family and I think I have always tried to teach them in the pursuit of the career you never have to lay aside your ideals hmm. most important thing for me was to have your ideals inform the very next step of decision making like what's your what is your heart and what is your ideal and let's see how that forms your life not like okay now I'm in this life and I never wanted it and my ideals were all scattered instead of that what if you walk in with the ideals you know leading the band and that's the thing I love I love my children unconditionally I love them unconditionally and I think that above all they know that that there is no but on that and if if your kids know that, that they are, oh my gosh, your heart and your belovedness, then they're going to be okay. I mean, we've had some fun times. I'm not going to get me wrong, raising three boys that are all in their 20s. <laughs> they're great. It's just, there's a lot. Speaking of Levi, his whole career shut down this past year. I mean, as far as road, he was on the road opening for every act that I can think of. And it just, you know, it, this is actually a sweet season, seeing my kids every day. I'm off the road, Levi's off the road, Marcus is off the road, son's home from college. There's that reflex muscle again, that reframe muscle again. I love that. Um, uh, and it's so true. Uh, the My kids uh, aren't of the age where um, they don't know the difference because they're not you know, out social active in schools and all that stuff, but they do notice I'm there more. Yeah, And they have really benefited from that, I believe. And I have too. So it has been um, a beautiful offering. And, and I, the number of, because I, part of my work is, is, um, is, is close to the music industry and working with a lot of artists and, and songwriters and that have 
um, their world has just turned upside down. And um, I was, uh, we're doing a talk um, in a week, I think, for CRS, which is Country Radio Seminar. And it's this big collection of radio programmers across the country. And every year they do this big convention in Nashville. And I've, I've done a, a keynote there the last two, three years because they're starting to get more interested in emotional health and how it impacts artistry and uh, the pace of their career. And just trying to, like what you said, keep your uh, ethics and ideals up front in a, in a wild entertainment culture. But this year, you know, I'm so proud of them that they asked for something different. You know, they, they said we have been inspired by some of what, you know, the messages you brought. Um, about how we can be more successful with what we're doing and all that. But this year, our whole world's been turned upside down. And we've got people for the first time in their 30-year career that uh, they may not have a career to go back to, that these small programmers in these towns everywhere, uh, they've lost all revenue and they're literally shutting down stations. And so they're having to, they were saying, what would you have to say about how to navigate the unknown, Hmm. how to deal with uncertainty, um, how to start all over, um, and so that's kind of what they're inviting us to talk about this year. Maybe you can help me prep for the talk. What would you say to some of that? I would use resilience and remnants. Hmm. Boom. Where we started, because I do think that is the theme for me. What I'm learning this year is, you know, trusting that resiliency and building from the remnants and doing that, you know, again, in the hokey pokey way with our whole self in. That's what I would talk about. I mean, I really do think in many ways, that's what the three of us have been talking about in this podcast. And I also think I never have more new ideas. I have a ton of new ideas right now. And somehow when you lean into this resilience and remnants, you can start seeing um, new paths where maybe you just saw rubble before. And like, there's a building that's been sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, by the river. It's been sitting empty since 20, I'm mean, sorry, 2009, so 11 years. It's right on the Cumberland River. And somehow this year I've seen it for the first time. I've really seen it and seen its potential. And I have a whole new idea about what we can do with it. And it's, um, it's different than anything I've done before. And I'm so happy to remember that part of me. You know, and I think... The idea that CSR is even pivoting and, you know, turning like a ballerina to say, okay, now we have to figure out new ways of being together. You know, you're the right person to do that. It's going to be beautiful. Hmm. Thanks. I'll circle back and listen to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Things start to get interesting when they're not so predictable. You know, I love that it sparked creativity and room for ideas for you. Can't wait to see what you're building up in your head. I know. And I wrote a new book. Oh, wow. Done. I wrote a whole book this year, which is unbelievable to me. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's a HarperCollins book. It's called Practically Divine, just like I was talking about. I mean, this stuff is not just something I'm, you know, thinking about quickly. It's stuff I've been reflecting on and writing about for a long time. And I really do want to blur the lines between what we think of as poetic and what we think of as practical, what we think of as religious, what we think of as secular, what we think of as therapeutic, what we think of, you know, as creative, whatever, whatever we're doing, just blurring all those lines and saying, how is it we can um, integrate that and 
live with more divine in our everyday life. Wow, that's timely. Uh, and then, then the message seems pretty timeless too. So I wondered if you'd be willing, I think we got like two or three minutes left here and you could take 30 seconds of that if you want to, but you mentioned the importance of rituals up front. You invited us into one that you do with uh, the circle that I've had an opportunity to sit in, but is there a, a ritual, a ritualistic way you'd like to close out our time now or that you'd be open to doing that? Absolutely. But I will say also that, um, you guys are doing amazing heroic work. And anytime any of us at Thistle Farms, not just myself, but the whole community, we're grateful to y'all and we want to be a part of that journey. Mm. I will use my ritual for closing to be the most simple ritual that anyone knows in the world. And we can be invited to a feast of peace just by breathing in, right? And remembering how love is all around us and it's holding us up and it's holding us together and that it connects us and love can span six feet easily mm. and it can outlast a pandemic. And we've got this if we can stay together. And so we breathe and we hope and we love. Amen. Amen. Wow. Thank Amazing. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.